Hello, everyone. <laughs> hello, Mr. Murphy. That's the hello I was looking for. I know. That's right. We're going to address this properly. What's going on? What's in the works? <laughs> we uh, are going to the Grand Canyon for our initial expeditionary trip to plan uh, to l- whether we find the G.E. Kincaid Cave, which was the original thought a few months ago. The plan is to locate rock cut ruins that appear to be outside of indigenous or uh, dynastic peoples of the last 12,000 years that we suspect, you know, the, the narrative that's been caving forever that we've discussed forever is, you know, the only people in North America and South America came down on the Bering land bridge and the genetics of the entire, uh, whether they're Phoenician, possibly some Egyptian, definitely uh, Chinese, uh, Roman, you know, the Bay of Anfora jars down in Brazil, there is just massive indicators that for at least even in the last 6,000 years, there has been well-established trade routes and possibly longer to and from the Americas and South Americas, and that there has been a mixing of societies way beyond what standard academia has been discussing, way beyond the uh, LIDAR scans of Guatemala, and the Grand Canyon is an area that, with the G.E. Kincaid Cave, the theory was in 1909 that, uh, well, it may be an April Fool's joke that a person that actually was working with someone who was working for people that were allegedly with the uh, Smithsonian, which the Smithsonian gets out of saying that G.E. Kincaid worked for him because he didn't. He didn't say that, but there was a single article that said he had been traveling up what is now called Marble Canyon and that at X location he had spotted a cave. He found Egyptian artifacts and hieroglyphs and there was a number of treasures there that ultimately the Smithsonian covered up and took. And there's been a lot of chat about it, but no one's ever gone back. So myself and uh, Rex from Leak Project, we will be meeting out there. And going into the canyon, this will be in September, I will be providing photographs, of course, for you, almost exclusively. And Oh, my. That's, it's been too long since I heard that voice. So <laughs> here we are. We are excavating your inner thoughts. Oh, I like the way this is going. See, who says archaeology can't be a bag of fun? And sexy. That's exactly right. It's not just sexy soil and sexy archaeology. The, the exciting part is our history as a search and rescue. So here we are with uh, no one, ironically, uh, splunking information. Everything is very difficult to find when it comes to the Grand Canyon. People out there, if you're listening, can uh, definitely digress down to finding accurate maps of caves in the Grand Canyon, accurate maps of mines in the Grand Canyon, accurate maps of beyond Guano Point and the cave that they were mining guano out of that had a cable car that was snapped by an Air Force jet. You can spend a lot of time, uh, they think, I mean, for conspiracy's sake, one of the theories goes that Guano Point on the South Rim where the skywalk is, you can go to Guano Point, the mining um, cable location, the, the station is still there, and you can see Guano Point kind of across the, I mean, at that point, the drop is almost 6,000 feet, and the cable car went across the canyon, and they were mining 24 hours a day, and they thought there was going to be over $100 million worth of bat guano, but it turned out to be more like 10 to $15 million maybe, and the cover story is that, that they were mining 
bat guano. And then one of the conspiracies is that in reality, it's one of those caves that the that the Guano Point Cave is actually part of a massive underground system that connects to other underground systems that range all across the United States from the Yucca Mountain and uh, other assorted locations in Nevada all the way down to south of the border that the entrances in the Grand Canyon actually connect with all of that. So that's one of those ones that people probably hear less of that's going on. That's a, that's a possibility about the Guano Point Cave. But there's not just uh, like Dawson's Cave. Uh, one of the big excuses is, oh, uh, we're protecting bats. Well, there are no protected bat species in the Grand Canyon or even in that state area. There just isn't. Yet we have a number of cave systems being uh, blocked off from exploration. And then, of course, the other straw man argument is, oh, it's for safety. And yes, getting into the Grand Canyon is, on one hand, for those who are casual tourists, difficult because what's well, quite a descent, or if you get to a point where you can get into a boat and go, um, a lot of things are booked out for a year or so. But you can literally walk into the canyon, uh, you can hike in, there are multiple hiking points, and you can actually do it. But uh, again, there are warnings, and there's times of years where it's incredibly hot. So, like right now, you wouldn't want to hike past 10 a.m. You would want to get into the canyon uh, prior to you know, you'd want to leave at like four in the morning or five in the morning. You'd want to get uh, through a trail system and into the shade. And there are day routes you can take, and then you start again in the afternoon. So you get down there, spend the day in the shade, uh, but then uh, to get out of the canyon. Uh, you know, so, so there's a lot of digression, I guess, as far as the logistics of how you would travel as a tourist versus how do you get into the canyon and look for rock cut ruins, look for, uh, you know, 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, 4,000, 5,000 feet up a wall. How do you find rock cut ruins? And ruins that are clearly made by people when, if we start doing the math now, not 12,000 years ago, but 50,000 or 60,000 or sometime uh, pre-Younger Dryas, uh, where would the river have been? What level would the river have been at? What, What, since the theory goes that maybe Mark Antony and Cleopatra's child left e- left Egypt as the Romans occupied, uh, allegedly left f- with maybe five to 15,000 people or some say over 50,000 that they traveled ultimately to North America and that they ultimately ended up in the Grand Canyon area. Uh, there's some completely other uns- uh, unsubstantiated claim that a particular pharaoh, um, I'm not even going to bring it up because it's, it's just urban myth. But it just says that, hey, you know, that the cave system was used by Egyptians about 1800 BC. And uh, up to, you know, the Cleopatra, Mark Antony time period. But the truth of it is, no matter what, that the river 3,000 years ago would be at a different height. And if it was 60,000 or 50,000 or 100,000 years ago, the river would be at a different height. And what are the cave systems that would at that point not have been caves? Would they have been entrances to dwellings, entrances to spaces that would have been used by society? And those are not easily accessible now. So one could argue that, well, you know, the Smithsonian's already been here. They've already located a lot of this stuff. It's a priority. It's why there's a government, in quotes, section of the Grand Canyon, and it's a way to keep people out. Um, it's the reason there's no splunking maps. There's all of this info that basically says, well, everybody knows there's something there, but there's no way to get to it. Well, part of knowing that is to try, which is why the first week of September we will be making a preliminary investigation uh, and planning what will hopefully be a larger expedition with rock, very experienced rock climbers. I'm very experienced, but I'm not uh, on the kind of person that I would not be the one to want to have to set up the uh, correct equipment to haul gear or to do a 2000 foot ascent and make sure that we could get to and from that is going to be deferred to some of my good friends that will be coming. And that trip, 
will be post the first week of September. We have to collect a lot of information. We're still going to the rim and locating uh, the GE Kincaid cave where we think it exists and or locating very, very mysterious rock cut openings that appear to have been part of maybe a forgotten or lost society. That's what's up right now. No matter what, the whole process and the journeying involved in this is exciting and interesting. So it's going to be even more uh, spectacular to get into these hard to get into locations, which frankly scare me, Jared. I'm not a rock climber. So just this idea of getting closer into deep mysteries like this vis-a-vis serious inquiry. This isn't like just let's casually move through here. There's a lot of technical uh, stuff going on here that is at play and that you're juggling all together to make this be congruent and hopefully in the end fruitful. Yeah. And, and that's the, that's the part where we want to accelerate. We're not going to, we can't run and it's not about, Hey, how is it too slow or et cetera? It's the issue is, Hey, uh, everyone's chatting about it. Well, part of, you know, Arthur Posenansky, uh, Arturo, who wrote some of the most quintessential volumes on Tiwanaku, he was an adventurer. Um, uh, Flinders Petrie, the, there, there's so many uh, people that on one hand, it's like, okay, well, some had a degree, some didn't. The issue is choosing to go. And... You know, there wasn't a school that said, I'm going to make the North Pole before you or I'm going to make the South Pole before you. You know, the 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 heart of adventure is to have a passion and a desire for it. And and if you don't like heights, uh, to at least be good with blindfolds. <laughs> okay, yep. so let's look at this as a total experience. So the scouting mission is coming up. And so there, this is a several part process. Walk us through how you see it unfolding now. So right now, uh, what's cool is that this thing is being sponsored by Ascent Nutrition and EMF Harmony. And so we'll be, uh, that that's very helpful to have uh, sponsors on board. And so part of what we're doing is uh, I will be flying in and one of the stops is Montezuma's Castle. And although it's dynastic, it there's a lot of mystery around whether it's the Anasazi, the Pueblo, the um, oh my gosh, there are at least twelve uh, that we could think of in a timeline and storyline groups of indigenous um, peoples that in twelve thousand years have contributed to or been in contact with some of these, you know, the ant people and the assorted other underground dwellers and the the indications are that something like Montezuma's castle and the, some of these other um, mud or rock built, why, why live in the grand Canyon? Why live in some of these, what to us currently appear to be very inaccessible, uninhabitable places. So the idea is to take a look at some of that indigenous stuff right away when we get off, when I get off the plane. And then as you travel into uh, Navajo land, uh, to meet with the people who we really should be looking to first for answers, and that's always indigenous people. And it's not; it should not come from an, a wholly academic uh, setting. It should start with the people who have been living there for thousands of years, because even if they don't represent the people who were there hundreds of thousands of years ago, there is a connection that we've talked about genetic memory and shared memory and collective memory and collective human consciousness. And there's something we said. And oral about any, traditions as well. Yeah, and native traditions and their connection literally to the actual you know, biomechanics, not just woo-woo, but the biomechanics of the earth of that area, I can't help but think that they are plugged in in a way that is going to be more fruitful, no matter what their legends are, what their interpretations are of the blinky board and the technologies that they're running into. Uh, being able to connect with some of them on site is invaluable, and it's necessary for us to really move forward and understand not just recent histories or, you know, the American country moving West and turning into America, but to really look at uh, what are some of the native stories behind Montezuma's castle or some of these other uh, 
uh, rock built mud mud brick uh, rock built uh, castles or city complexes that are in some of these areas in the Grand Canyon. And then what about these tunnels? What are some of these stories like Clifford Mahoney and assorted others have spoken on the the likelihood of a, a, um, you know, the legendary stories of the indigenous are, again, they're shadows of truths of things that have actually happened. And so when we get there, uh, and this will be, so day two, it's, we're going to start at the rim of directly above the mile marker that we think is where the GE Kincaid cave is. And we are going to um, do some initial assessment of the ground. So part of what's going on is nonstop photography and interviews with, you know, we have something scheduled that I can't talk about. But at the same time, it's we have to look at the rock itself and say, well, if we're going to descend to a location. So if it's in the Kincaid report, the cave was only 14 plus hundred feet from the rim. And by judgment from the ground, from the river, it was about 2000 feet up. And despite being alone, it was, he was able to scramble up the 2000 feet. So think of it, an intermediate to advanced hiking trail. Um, what that means is, is that for the most part, you could probably crawl your way up it. But if you started sliding or if you tripped, it would likely you would either fall very Looney Tunes funny to your death or severe injury, or maybe you would just kind of slide in the third base and stop and <laughs> halfway down the hill, you would stop rolling or et cetera. Oh, but intermediate to advanced hiking generally means that you're not climbing, but you are um, maybe just moving up sand and loose rock. Uh, it's the pitch, it's the angle. I mean, there's a lot of things that make intermediate to advanced hiking, you know, a no joke situation. And so we need to assess the physicality of what are we looking at? Are, are we going to be putting anchors into the dirt? Are we going to be, uh, what kind of ropes, you know, we use as climbers, uh, or I guess in this case, kind of alpining, we're using ropes that are all weather ropes. They can withstand being wet. They don't swell. They don't fray. Uh, the ropes that you see a lot of climbers on, you can get good ropes for under $200, $300, but most of the ropes that we'll be bringing are you know, two to $400 ropes and more, and they're meant for kilonewtons. Kilo, they're, they're meant for force, not just weight. They're meant for force, and that's a different kind of measurement. You need to uh, manage dampness, wetness, dryness, heat. You have to manage... If I have a two, three hundred pound packed person with gear, uh, gear and the person, and they take a whipper where they fall uh, 10 feet, 20 feet, 30 feet, if they fall on the rope, can the rope uh, stop them without breaking their back? That's why climbing ropes are so expensive. They have a pull, they have elasticity, like a rubber band. They don't bounce you around like you're on a bungee, but the whole point of a climbing rope is to take the pressure off your spine. So just like a rack of gear is 60 to 80 pounds. So if you're just going up with cams, there's a certain amount of weight. And then if you're uh, drilling or anchoring or epoxying a route, and again, the point in rock climbing, when you're challenged by the rock face, you're trying to create a challenging route. That's not what we're doing here. We are trying to create a safe descent or ascent to a rock cut cave, uh, something that we see as suspiciously artificial, and photograph it and measure it. And it doesn't mean go splunking down 100 feet or 200 feet or into the cave, uh, which is currently not allowed. But the point is to photograph uh, up close and personal these locations that we suspect were part of societies, not by the way, because the river was taller and there was accessibility because they were, uh, you know, primitive people. We're talking about rock cut openings that were part of maybe materials and finishes and woods or metals and things that would have represented a maybe a beautiful vista viewed restaurant of 
antiquity or a building that you know yes it had interior spaces and went down leagues into the uh you know, inside the canyon itself, inside the, uh, not cave, but a rock cut tunnel uh, complex. But perhaps we are looking at what's left of uh, something outside of indigenous living of a more advanced society. And all we have left are, you know, everything else is turned to dust, but we want to look for, I mean, is, would it be neat to run into some hieroglyphs? Sure. Yeah. I mean, even if it, I mean, Nobody's supposed to find hieroglyphs. Nobody's supposed to find Roman. I mean, there's indications east of Arizona that the Romans maybe made it that far. Maybe were part of um, maybe the Templars or the Vikings. That there, there's definitely indicators. I mean, there are blonde-haired, blue-eyed Indians, and that was pre-contact. That was pre-colonization. There's there is a good chance that you know maybe we find something that was done in the last couple hundred or thousand or last couple thousand years that appear to be uh, Celtic or Roman or Phoenician. And they do indicate some other uh, millennial and uh, adventure that that would be exciting to find, but uh, we know what we're looking for and it doesn't have to be a mummy. It doesn't have to be a hieroglyph. Um, setting up to logistically go into the canyon and whether or not we can make that happen. I mean, the plan is to hike in or the plan is to possibly, there. there's a possible, um, I can't really discuss it on air right now, but there is another way to uh, legitimately get in and safely explore the mile markers that we think represent where the Kincaid uh, cave allegedly is, but then there are other indicators, thanks to some other researchers that have uh, forwarded information to me, that definitely show very suspicious rock-cut uh, openings that, again, these are not things anthropologists, archaeologists, paleoanthropologists, or et cetera, can go just go look at. Irrelevant to having a height fear, you have to have the gear to get down into them. And in order to do that or up to them... Um, just to give you an idea of a basic setup, you know, if, if I, if, you know, it's just, if it's just the two of us and we were going to go set up a route, you, you have a bull layer and then you gotta, you gotta set a route. And so you have a couple options. You can feel like the, the rock you're looking at is going to have enough uh, crevices, et cetera, for you to do what's called traditional climbing, trad climbing, which is you're going to bring cams and nuts and you're going to, um, you're basically going to pound in anchor points that you're going to hope are not going to become unwedged. And you're going to put from your rack of 80 pounds of gear, you're going to put on a carabiner and you're going to put the rope through the carabiner and you're, you're going to have to climb locate the catch points, set the catch points, and not fall while you're doing it. Oh, my goodness. It's like rubbing and, your head and belly <laughs> at the same time. Yes. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's perfect. Yeah. That's, and, that, and that, to do that, is called traditional climbing. And there are areas or established routes where, you know, people, people bring their gear. They know how hard it's going to be. And you set your rope as you go. And now there are sport routes that have been preset. They've been bolted. And so in, in an expedition like this, we need to actually assess what is the rock. Where, if we suspect there's a cave, uh, do we know the geology? Well, quite a bit of the Grand Canyon has been mapped. there. So when you go to look up things about the Grand Canyon, one of the things you'll find is there's either appears to be nothing or you would think that hundreds of explorers have been there and it's all worked out. And one of the things that the government has done is a geosurvey. So they've mapped uh, underwater. They've mapped the topography of the ground uh, of the entire canyon. Uh, they've established the soil layers. And, and they very much vary throughout the Grand Canyon. They vary. They vary tremendously. Um, and it, it's incredible, incredible variety. But we have to establish, okay, well, it looks like, you know, there's something suspect and we really think it's going to be worth coming back. So we're 
I have X amount of uh, very expert route setters. And the goal is to not make a hard route. The goal is to make a safe route. And that is very different than trying to go and explore, oh, you know, I want this route to be a, a 512 or, a, oh, it's going to be real easy. It's going to be a 55 or 56, you know. I mean, 55 five isn't even really 5657. The the goal isn't to create a route that's challenging to the climber. The goal is to create the safest, fastest, or most efficient way to utilize energy to up or down climb or descend to the suspect location. And that means setting, whether it's cams, nuts, uh, bolts, setting a route that will get us there over what may be 2,000 feet or a descent route, in this case, of about 1,400 feet. And the only way to do it is to assess by doing a trip like we're going and doing. And also, when you're there, you can on-site not just the route, but you can on-site other caves. And so for us to locate what we think uh, and have likely been inaccessible to the average university uh, professor for those that aren't climbers. Uh, I have a good feeling that other than, you know, miners during the gold rush, I in quotes, any of the rushes, silver rush, gold rush, copper, whatever, that there are definitely been period miners that have explored the canyon looking for what they would hope would be uh, a silver mine or, a, you know, whatever the precious metal they were trying to locate instead of going out to the gold rush. Uh, there were definitely miners that headed towards the canyon and thought that they could, along with larger companies, they thought that they could find something. But that doesn't account for the uncountable number of unmapped uh, cave systems that are throughout the entire canyon. It's Most people are just blown away by the splendor of it all and it really is impressive or just on their bucket list you know i want to go down the rapids and ironically i bet there's a half a dozen things that you could put down on someone's bucket list but they don't answer these questions they don't answer the what has become an age-old podcast uh radio and tv and cable um history channel uh topic which is okay, uh, the G.E. Kincaid cave may be real. Uh, there may have been Egyptians uh, based on all the on the monuments within the Grand Canyon, labeled, mind you, by natives themselves. These were not words that were used. I thought at first myself that, well, you know, King Tut, you know, there was a lot of interest, turn of the century, 1800s, early 1900s, a lot of interest in Egypt. So they named all these uh, different sightline points within the Grand Canyon over Egyptian things because, well, it was just kind of Art Nouveau. It was just a thing to do. And then come to find out that it was the indigenous people that did the naming, that they have Egyptian words. And that isn't something that fits in the narrative is, okay, well, when we're there, we're going to do those interviews. It's like, how long have you been using this word? and Or how long have you been, um, you know, looked at it at this point on the horizon? And, you know, what are your stories? You know, if we can get them to share uh, the people we do are, and are going to have the privilege of speaking with, the reality is um, there, are mis- there are very mysterious Egyptian references to the Grand Canyon and why if they weren't familiar with the language? How is it possible that they have the language? And so there are these dialogues that we have on these shows, and we do as much you know armchair research as we can, but getting back to the canyon itself and to identify all the above, uh, also work on the logistics of how to safely get to these spaces, and documenting the whole thing is something that no one, I think, has done in... Uh, not not really extensively. I think kind of we're the first people to go back and do it in a long time. I like your energy and motivation to get up off of the couch and go into the real world and try and find answers to these questions that everyone's talking about. Uh, this is a game changer in a way, and it takes a certain amount of stamina to see through this because as you know because you've been putting this together there's a lot of variables in action here to make things like this happen 
Absolutely. Yes. I appreciate that. It's, and it's not, um, it's not lost on me that, you know, this is not for anyone listening out there. This is not a matter of a lot of, um, there are a lot of unknowns and there are a lot of knowns about common sense, about advanced or intermediate hiking, um, advanced climbing, uh, that's a skill that I've worked on for over five years. And uh, I know some people are familiar with someone very famous like Alex Honnold. And learning a skill set where, I mean, what that man did, it's truly, truly, truly terrifying and incredible. Um, but to climb a 512 BC with no ropes, uh, that's a different animal. It's a different skill set than taking your climbing skills. And although the height sounds terrifying and and tremendous, uh, setting very good, well-designed scientific equipment, uh, setting to descend or ascend, the height is, you know, it's an endurance thing. There's that. There's some, there's definitely some, uh, you know, you, you need to be, in decent shape to do it. However, uh, part of it really is the common sense of saying, okay, well, by going on this trip, are we covering our bases for safety? Are we, and, and the intent behind climbing, even when you're doing it as an activity, it's one of the most dangerous things you can do in the world, but the danger isn't, uh, you know, you can be injured during any sport, but the issue with climbing is, how many areas of risk are you introducing? So if you're on a bolted route versus a a top rope set that, that you know has multiple anchor points and failure points, are you using you know there are places where the rock's so sharp in Scotland that they climb with two ropes because they expect one of the ropes to cut on the rock. And, that is nightmarish uh, to me. What if both get cut on this right? sharp jagged? edges and it's like that in some parts of the middle east too where it's just like razors right so there's you know everything about climbing is on one hand uh you know you get the speech when you go to do an interior interior gym uh the speech you get here in the twin cities uh, part of it goes climbing is inherently dangerous and everybody jokes about it later it's like you know this is inherently dangerous but the reality is that the majority of the people who get injured are doing it they're getting injured from falling uh, 10 to 20 feet or even five feet they're they're actually falling on the boulder routes which require no rope and I think people get overconfident uh, it's a whole other dialogue but what it really is is people get uh, they feel like well you know I'm not on a rope I'm safer I'm closer to the ground but if you really think about it it's if you're not used to jumping off a five or six foot ladder uh, just because you feel safe jumping down to a two foot pad, uh, the reality is a lot of people twist their ankles or literally break oh, their yeah. ankles. You have to be you have to be stretched and in dancer shape to do stuff like that. That's you know martial arts shape to do stuff like yeah. that. People don't understand and, how easy it is to actually strain your ankle with stuff like that. Yeah, and it's not so when it comes to going to the canyon or anywhere and setting up a route, not for the enjoyment of creating a challenging route, but to just make a safe ascent or descent. And safe also has to do with heat, has to do with the elements, it has to do with, you know, do we have to use an ascender or are we able to use the, I mean, it's great when you can use your arms and your legs and actually climb. An ascender, there's a mechanical ascender, so you you pull a rope up and it's it's like you're pulling yourself like an inchworm or a caterpillar, you know, you're like crunching up and you're reaching up and the device you have helps you uh, ascend because you're holding it and you're uh, moving up the rope and it's a great device, but, you know, doing, you know, to get up, uh, you know, depending on your height, you know, to, to do that with some gear on you to do that 2000 feet or 1500 feet, it's like, doing, uh, you know, you got to figure if you like for every crunch, you move three feet, you got to think about doing 2000 feet of crunches, you know? <laughs> so, right. Uh, right. Yeah. So it's not, uh, and that, that just seems like so micro dialing it in there, but I wanted to give people an idea. It's like, okay, well, what are we going to do? We're going to spend so much 
time creating a safe ascent to hopefully get to more than one cave. But what if we what if we spend four days or three days or a week setting up to get to something we think is going to be spectacular and we get there and there's nothing there. So we've we've spent three or four days, we're talking eight, ten hour days, setting up maybe longer, setting up a, a route to get to a location that turns out to be nothing. There's, right. And this is this is part of archaeology. This is part of exploration. This is what is always in the mix. You may spend all this time and effort putting the whole thing together for your target to produce nothing. Yeah, evaporate. Yeah. And which is why we want to go and find more than one location. We want to be able to go while well, we have a group of talented uh, you know, expert route setters and we're, you know, to show up and on site and uh, for us to have photographs and beta of the areas we're looking at climbing to is very important. And being able to say, okay, well, there are literally like there are places in the canyon because it's, you know, up to 6,000 feet deep. Uh, there are places we're looking at where uh, there are whole layers of the, of the earth that, they're not even exposed. They're completely buried. And so you have layers where it's like, oh, look, there's like 20 layers or 15 layers or eight layers of different kinds of rocks. So you get up 300 feet and then the rock face changes. Does it get harder? Does it get softer? If it gets softer, how do we, how do we uh, set that? You know, can we climb it all to get to the next set anchor point, or are we literally going to have to go every five or ten feet? How brutal is it? You know, are we going to have to drill and set anchors uh, to make it past a hundred foot section where where it's so sheer uh, we can't actually get past it without doing an anchor to move up every dang foot and. That's a possibility, you know. So, um, for anyone waiting for us to give you an update on this, I highly recommend Horatio's, uh, Ken Burns's uh, documentary about Horatio's uh, car ride, or I, I can't remember if it's called. Uh, it's about a guy who did a bet and traveled across the country in a vehicle uh, when vehicles were first invented. And I think that would give you a solid idea of what this is about. <laughs> That's a good one. What, so while we're talking about possibilities, uh, let's look at what if something is discovered that has not been at least published or pushed forward in the collective? And what what is the protocol there? And we know all the stories, the shady stories that come forth from organizations and museums that really try hard to cover this stuff up. Yeah, so we have the people who – so there's a couple of different portions. One is uh, people who cover it up, people who want to take credit. There's that. I mean, it, it can be as much as – That's a big deal, uh, by the way. Yeah, people that want to co-opt it and take the full credit. Right. And then uh, – so we have the credit takers. Uh, we have the people who and, – and then unfortunately, there's a whole other crowd, like when it comes to – uh, a certain particular great pyramid about just, Hey, I'm about to run out of funding. Here's some paint. Why don't you go throw somebody's name up in the top of the pyramid sort of thing? You know, we have cases of great archeologists who were professionals doing very shady. Well, first off, that's the history of archeology, span uh, oh, doing yeah. <laughs> really shady things to continue funding. Um, so I'm not interested in faking it. I'm interested in finding, uh, this trip is being you know, irrelevant to sponsorship. This trip is being entirely done of our own accord and our own desire to our own sheer willpower to go do it. And I think it is invaluable to, again, our, I do believe our history is a search and rescue, not a search and recovery. And there is information in our past that relates to our genes, collective consciousness, not just our historical books of, oh, well, and it turns out, yeah, 100,000 BC, Jared was right. And there was uh, a very advanced society and and now the end. You know, that that is not the goal. The, the goal is to understand 
why is it that we have collective consciousness? What are we at 100% conscious? What are our abilities? What what is this Wim Hof superhuman thing? How does that how does controlling your inflammatory response relate to living indefinitely and being a part of a you know electromagnetic uh, connected uh, soil that uh, connects buildings to people, to animals, to plants. I mean, what what are all the things that we keep uncovering about this world that we keep labeling mystery are related biometric technologies, biotechnologies that are mistakenly given natural in origin. And the reality is that as we go down this road and we locate the greater mass of this more advanced civilization, maybe they, along with indigenous people in the last 12,000 years, share the space. And, you know, maybe one part of the river, again, we have 150 tribes plus on earth and we leave them alone. They don't have social security numbers. They belong to no government. They live within country borders, but they don't, they don't go to the doctor. They don't, well, they, you know, they, they, they don't show up in the city and, uh, these people are completely autonomous and they are alone. And we have, I think, the same situation in ancient times, in antiquity, truly great antiquity. We have very advanced uh, humanity living alongside very not advanced. So the story is not something we can unravel yet, but going to look for these ruins. And if we identify, again, if we identify some. Egyptian or Roman or Celtic or, you know, some of the Phoenicians, some of the suspected groups that were here, including Vikings, or do we find something that's older? Uh, but adding or skewing the history, we, we have to get past that. We have to, we have to, the, the, the truth of the true mystery of our species and its history is so crazy cool that, uh, you know, running out and fake painting something is just not worth it anymore. Yeah, it's ridiculous. When yeah. Let's look at some more of the logistics going on here. So I'm not, as it is coming forward, not going to be able to make the scout trip. But what as we move forward into the narrative of a lockdown that they're pushing again and all the, the kind of travel restrictions now that are coming online with internal United States travel. How is this going to be, uh, I guess, how are you going to overcome these obstacles? It's looking trickier. It looks like it's, uh, it's so bizarre. It's simultaneously getting trickier and easier simultaneously. I, so the way I see it, the debacle of our government is, I think the narrative, I think, to be honest, I think it's actually going in a positive direction. I think it's been so science has been ignored for so long, but the uh, the outcome um, is so. I, I I I'm not saying the outcome is inevitable, but I do feel based on uh, uh, some of my other friends and the uh, who are more in the know. I I do think that this is going in a positive direction. Ultimately, I. I do unfortunately think that the situation in the East uh, is going to kind of finally spotlight the ineptness of our current uh, leadership. And the, I, I, I don't see the narrative continuing. I think there is some fatigue in the belief structure because of uh, again, oh man, is it excretingly hard to talk around bannable subjects? I know, and, uh, and increasingly so. Uh, right. So for now, I would say that there were a number of people who weren't even that for or against the situation. They did what they were told, and now they're being told that they have to follow it up with more uh, not very evidentiary-based information. Um, a third of this country is quite immune to uh, what's been preached and it's because it's been an exposure and you know in the world of science we have an immune system and 
it works. And this is the first time in history where what I'm impressed with in the last few days is seeing the number of immunologists, virologists finally speaking up. I don't feel like there's been a lot of leadership in the science. There's no scientific community. There's no like uh, the Moose Clubhouse or the VFW where they all get together. There's literally no leadership in science. I mean, there's been suppression. There's been uh, threats. Uh, don't you dare say this, that, or the other. And I, it, it, at least in my uh, periphery, I've seen a number of scientists, experts in their field finally start speaking, not anything that we haven't known for decades. And they're finally speaking up. And I do think that it's kind of like the death row where it's like we have to double down. We have to try to create more fear porn. And we have to get people to to what? Statistically speaking, you're pretty darn in a good place. And statistically speaking, I mean, there's things we're supposed to live with and there's things we already live with. And there's um, plenty of, I feel like, uh, not bannable things currently being said. I'm super impressed with how far I've gotten without having to say anything specific. Yeah, that was good. Uh, I I want to push someone on you. Uh, her name is Jennifer Bruce, and I just did in the I just did two sessions with her, and she's one of these professionals that came forward and and not without consequences, but it's ultimately led her into a better experience, uh, just being open with what she was seeing. And she was talking about this whole LinkedIn situation with professionals in her field, in medical field. She's been a rep for Big Pharma for a long time. She worked on vaccines and this whole thing. She's got the whole background. And she was talking to some of her colleagues on LinkedIn and asking why they were, they knew this was, very misleading, that everything's very misleading. And, you know, initially they were like, well, everyone's got to support their life. And so some of that was coming. And then ultimately here recently when they said this is actually, it's it's beyond that. This is where it's affecting us as a race. And uh, the consequences are unfriendly, (laughs) to say the least, as we're dancing around here. And so this is why a lot of them are coming forward because they see how absolutely devastating this narrative is ultimately if it plays out. So, and she, and Jennifer is someone I really feel like you should uh, get on and chat because she's, she's well-rounded and uh, can chat about all this stuff. So not, not just uh, the medical stuff, which I think would be very interesting for your audience, but also all this other stuff that we're talking about, she is fully immersed in. So I just want to push that out and why I'm pushing that out. That would be great. And why I'm pushing that out. I'm sold. Oh, excellent. (laughs) I'll give you her information. But why I'm pushing this out is because it is taking people standing up to start and uh, question in a bigger way they're not questioning it. They're saying it, but to bring questions to the public and grounded in real science and in, in careers that have been full of accolade and uh, celebrated and all this. So these are, these are incredible people that are coming forward and they have been all along, but now they're coming in a bigger mass so yeah, that's what that we need a critical mass. Yes. And I, I, I and I, I see this happening simultaneously. So I currently am not I, it's not even on my radar to not go on the trip just to answer your question fully, which is I don't I don't think I'm gonna be stopped. I do think I'll be able to get a car. I do think I'll be getting out to the desert. Worst case scenario, I'll drive out. Yeah, and that's my thought as well, as far as I, I'm not gonna get on a plane at this point right now. So I, you know, to me, it's like, look at the alternatives and I'm actually, well, we're probably about the same distance from there. I don't feel like I'm that far. Plus I love a drive. I love a road trip. So with the road trip, with the, with the future of this, it's very exciting. This whole thing is very exciting and I'm thrilled that it is still planned and still moving forward. There have been setbacks, and some of this fuckery that we were just talking about have played into the setbacks. 
not yet. And then, you know, that larger expedition. So here's one of the things that is, I, I can't even for all those out there. It's as you think about the logistics of, Hey, we found our worst case scenario is going to be to say, it looks like we found more places we want to go to than we have time for without a large backer. And so let's just say, Everyone who's volunteering can get out and we can spend two weeks. But what if we have 50 or 80 or 100 caves that we want to get to? And what if we only have time to get to 10 or 12 or 5 look incredible and it's going to take us the whole two weeks? So the reality is uh, we may establish that our second trip out, which is still going to be done this season, and quite frankly, the time to work in the Grand Canyon is starting in September because the heat advisories will stay bad in September uh, by, uh, well, the temperatures are already dropping uh, at in the evenings and in the mornings. So that's positive. But the the temperatures during the day, you know, after 10 a.m., you do, you, you know, it's over 100 degrees. You don't really want to be hiking around uh, at certain times of the day. But come October and November and December and January, uh, February, we are going to hit a period where when it comes to rock climbing, hiking, advanced hiking, you know, that'll be a really good time period to be there. But that trip, uh, A, you could road trip it. B, there's going to be a lot to do uh, from boats slash groundwork slash I hope very much. Uh, that there will be some indigenous collaboration, and I'm very excited to be able to hear their stories and their their truths. And there will be plenty of things to be done that don't involve you dangling from a 1500 foot rope. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to focus on my other skills. I am super thrilled to see the indigenous folded into this because of course they're a major part of this story and to see where that could go as well. And this, a lot of this really is boots on the ground with people and building trust and, and building relationships. Yeah. And that's the mechanics of it. It's that simple. It's like, Oh, you're just going to go talk to people. Yeah. (laughs) And, but, but it's also, you know, get to the locations and, uh, you know, it's really fun to go on a vacation and go, you know, somebody points in a direction, you're on a group tour and you take a photo and it's like, I got that photo. And that those are fulfilling. This is not that. This is a uh, boots on the ground. You have to seek out what you're looking for. You know, we're using very detailed geological maps. I mean, like behind the scenes, some of the stuff that you're asking about is the geological surveys that I'm pouring over and sharing with Rex and what we're doing about mile markers and the topography and the, you know, what are, what are we looking at for entry and exit points? I mean, are we hiking in and out? What are the mechanics of what we carry? What are the weights? What, what are the times we leave? Is it 4am? Is it 5am? Is it 3.30am? Is it 6am? Where do we get, where do we stop? What are, you know, what, what are the, uh, um, locations within the nation that will be, you know, who are we going to be speaking with? Who else are we meeting with? I mean, there's a lot of different uh, components that make up making those uh, winning friends and and speaking to people who uh, will hopefully join us again, or we will be able to speak with again for this more extended trip for possibly two or even three weeks. I mean, I, I, I it's not that I wouldn't want to go for that long. It's that uh, we need to be able to collect valuable information about what we suspect is there. And, you know, it could turn into something more extensive, but there's two parts to that. We have to have some fruits of the labor that it would excite and interest a sponsor. So uh, that would be able to help us keep people on site full time or for a period of an expedition and say, okay, here, like in this trip, Part of it is to say, okay, we found these 50, 80, 100, or 5, or 12 uh, locations, and here's how many people, and here's the gear, and here's how long it's going to take to look at them, and to get to them, to even photograph them, and here's what we need, and here's how long it's going to be, and would you sponsor that? that that's the kind of the basics. Well, it's interesting because Rex, is, Rex does really well. And he has a, a sponsor 
shit behind him and all that. Everyone knows this. So it's easy, easy peasy on his end for that. But for you and others in the team, we're building this and uh, from the ground up. So it is all about what exciting possibilities will be found, what is going to be promising. And, uh, you know, it's the carrot deeper down into this rabbit hole. Yeah, it's it's very much uh, a start, and it's a real start. And I do think there is something when you put something out in the ether and you put momentum behind it, it will it will morph or continue to hopefully not turn into a uh, crazy rabid child, but will grow into something that is um, creates good synergy and draws people in, and will get the momentum and the whether it's capital or or manpower or both that everything will come together and we will. I, I, no matter what, what we find as we hit these different locations will be surprising. I think they will be very interesting. They will be exciting because this isn't something you Google and get. You know, you get uh, photographs of distant shots. You don't get up close photographs of these canyon entrances or these uh, these cave locations or anything. You don't get it. Right. This is what makes this very exciting. And of course, Jen is on the expedition as well. Is she making the first one? Uh, No. Um, But what's very important, uh, she well was, but what is important is to get everything ready for this this longer trip where, you know, people, you know, they, 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 not everyone has to be out there for the whole time. So, you know, as we follow up and talk about this again and upcoming shows and share photos and stuff or talk about it, part of it is to say, okay, well, look, you know, we're going to this base camp and we're going to be setting route for six days or four days or three days. So the reality is, you don't need to show up and twiddle your thumbs. It could be there are groups and people that could be coming or participating and even helping, but they may only need to come on day five or day yes. 10 or day nine. Yeah. Yeah. I like how fluid all this is. And uh, we're nearing an hour here, so we should wrap on this. But let's yeah. let's talk about for a second here. We have exciting news that's going to be Moving forward, you and I have a solo project that envelops everything we do individually and, of course, brings us closer in in the dance. Yes, and so th- for everyone who's heard our general synergy, we, we, we're, we're, we're doing this with both hands tied behind our back. So the idea was to <laughs> – we, we thought there would be a good solid format where we could produce a show that would be kind of us, no holds bar just going off on our our normal con, uh, tangents, but completely uninhibited, no editing, and uh, at a minimum R-rated. Yes, so it's going to be fun and entertaining and educational all at once, and with a side of sexy time. Yeah, we don't want you to just flip to the centerfold. We're giving you content to read. <laughs> That's right. Very good content to read. So people, yeah. keep an eye out for that. We are actively uh, creating that. It's happening. So until then, though, Jared, how do people find you in the world? Yeah, notaliens.com. Not Aliens on YouTube. Feel free to uh, sign up there. And Rockfin, I am not posting quickly there because I've been working through a revamp, but I have a Rockfin channel, Not Aliens. We have the notaliens.com. I have a member area. Please sign up. My book is on pause as far as a written publication. It's being revised and being released with a new publisher. So the audiobook is available for members as I publish uh, chapters on notaliens.com. And as always, you can hear us together here monthly. Yes. So this was another wonderful time with you on the dance floor. I think I worked up a sweat. I'm looking forward to every which way this plays out. Jared Murphy, thank you for returning to the Cosmic Salon and dancing with me. And there he goes, Jared Murphy.
So I hope that sparks your curiosity and gets you a little bit excited. And it's very important to note here the messaging I always want to make sure we are addressing within ourselves, that we continue to make plans, we continue to dream forward, we continue to do things that enrich our lives and plan on things that will enrich our lives instead of halting everything. We have to work around the detours now. But in no way should we just dream it's over. Keep dreaming. Keep living. Keep wanting. I would like to thank the producers of this program, Christy Tesmer, Eric Peterson, Jason Lamson, Marcy Shapiro, Melanie Poe, Michael Wachter, Santa Rebecca, and Patrick Newlin as well as the other patrons at my Patreon. Thank you. Dream another dream. Walk with me. Let's dream another dream. Let's get full immersion into the dream we want to see with keeping a mindful eye on the dream that is right now pulling us in and tying our goodwill down. Thank you for joining me.